This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, I'm Grace Ho, opinion editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times that takes a hard look at social and political issues of the day. In this episode, we are going to look at what outdoor learning and adventure education means, why it's useful, the kinds of standards or guidelines that govern this sector, and its future. In the studio with me today is David Chua, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Youth Council. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Grace. We also have Edson Lo, Deputy Director of Outward Bound Singapore. Great to have you on too. Hi, Grace. Now, David and Evan, most of us know what kayaking or hiking is, and we would have done some form of such activities, either voluntarily or because our teachers forced us to in our youth. So why make this distinction and call certain activities outdoor learning and adventure education? Uh, Well, from our perspective, uh, outdoor learning leads to learning and development outcomes. And when we think of the development outcomes, we focus specifically on two aspects, resiliency and self-efficacy, which is also another term for personal agency. And this is predicated on changing a person's mindset. And you're familiar with growth mindset. And basically, that's what it's about, putting the person or the young person on a trajectory of growth, where in a zone of discomfort, the person pushes the boundaries addresses his fears, uh, builds confidence, and then applies that to the situation and then beyond the situation. So when, when we think about these outcomes, then we look at the outdoors as a medium and the outdoors provide a, a range of uh, learning environments where we can adapt the learning techniques. We can do inquiry-based learning, we can do place-based learning, we can do play-based learning. So there's a variety of techniques that we can then apply in that environment. And most importantly, it allows the, the young person to question, to wobble, to discover, practice, and then reapply it to life situations. And that is the outcome we want to go on. So because of that, there is a differentiation between seeking an adventure and an experience, which is in and of itself okay. But when you want to lead it to specific outcomes, then it lends itself to a certain design, which Edwin will share later, where within the design, you will need to think about how you initiate the activity or challenge, what sort of degree of instruction and teaching, so that there's a bit of reflection and an ability to then reapply. And then finally, also to seize some of the moments that yield themselves from the environment so that you catch uh, certain values and you are able to put those values into action. So uh, David, you run, you kayak and you rock climb and Edwin, so can you share some of your memorable experiences of such education, how you put it into action? Hi Grace, I think my my personal outdoor adventures are skewed towards hiking and mountaineering, although I dabble in all sorts of uh, adventure activities on a personal basis and I bring my family along. My most memorable outdoor adventure education experience was when I was 15, uh, quite some time back. I was, uh, I was a 15-year-old attending an outward-bound course. 
it was five days of really rugged training. At the time, it was uh, conducted by a different agency. And that taught me a sense of uh, independence, responsibility, and endurance. Even up to today, I still remember the activities that I did, the lessons that I learned. And although the level of facilitation by the instructors then and now are different, uh, but these lessons stay with me. Uh, it can be as simple as washing my my plates after I finish my meal. That's something that I immediately applied after my program at that time and I carry all the way now. And the other learnings that I have now, I apply in my work with my, my colleagues and my staff. So these are memorable lessons that stay with me. Right. And speaking of memorable lessons, um, I really have to ask you the next question because I used to skydive. And the reason I could jump out of a plane was because the world looked like Google Maps. So it was very easy to you know, cycle myself into jumping. But I actually have a fear of heights. So if you put me on a rope course that's a few meters off the ground, I actually can't do it. Now, given that there are people like me who somehow don't seem to be drawing lessons and have an intrinsic fear of heights, can we do another form of experiential learning? So, you know, not to be cheeky, but why don't you just put us together in a room and make us solve team puzzles? Okay. Just to elaborate further on what uh, my C mentioned about the design of uh, these activities that are for educational intention. So uh, it all goes down to what is the purpose for your participation and the choice of activity. So if your intention is really to have a great time, get off work and have a thrill, have some recreation or have a sense of achievement, so you may participate in skydiving for those purposes. But if your intentions are really uh, about your ability to work with your, your peers, your community, people around you, your ability to lead, uh, your ability to master your own fears and overcome your limitations, then perhaps a different kind of activity that is intentionally matched to these outcomes can achieve the purpose uh, more effectively and within a shorter period of time. And of course, the facilitator, the instructor plays an important role in outdoor adventure education to help the participant and the learner reflect on this experience and then draw those uh, meaningful conclusions and applications. So in your case, you're, you're right. You may be doing it for a thrill, and that's valuable, and you enjoyed it, but you have no intention to learn about working together with the people around you. So you may not find um, participating in the, the challenge course as meaningful. But for other people who have those learning outcomes, then those become meaningful. And you, you really can't learn about working together with other people uh, under challenging conditions, just playing games in the hall, right? You, you, can, you can learn some uh, conceptual ideas, but the actual uh, reality, the, the emotions will not be as real as uh, in a challenge course. So depending on the intention, uh, the design will then match the right activity to the purpose of the activity. Yeah, I'm just going to... Uh build on Evan's thing and, and I like skydiving because I was ex-military. I did a tandem jump so I didn't do a solo skydive. I've also done more static line jumps which is when the parachutes deploy when you leave the plane. So actually Grace, although you have done a solo skydive, I would still encourage you to do a static line jump and I would still encourage you to do a ropes course challenge. For, for the very simple reason, as Edvin said, that it's predicated on objectives. So let's just think about the, the static line. Uh. 
I, I was able to compare my fear for a static line jump vis-a-vis the skydive. To be honest, I was more scared when I looked out of the airplane in a static line jump because I remember very clearly over the Pai Leba runway, I could see the top of the HDB flats. And in my mind, it was like, I, I can immediately understand uh, the height <laughs> reference top of HDB flat and ground vis-a-vis above the clouds where the world was, like you said, Google Map, I, I almost felt like, okay, there's also a, a margin for error. The margin for error for the static line jump was not there. It was like, if the chute doesn't deploy and I don't pull my reserve chute and I don't do my drills, I'm going to hit the ground. I'm going to not die, but maybe break a leg. <laughs> so the, the fear I felt was more visceral. So I, I guess the and then I applied it to the high ropes course, which I only did later in life when I did with the OBS guys. Actually, I also damn scared when I go on the high ropes because I can see the ground. <laughs> Whereas the skydive is like kind of fuzzy down there and I can land in the clouds first. <laughs> so the, the important issue here is that we have to learn to address that fear. So I would still put you through a high ropes because... I would love for you to address that fear, but maybe not put you at 30 meters or 20 meters. Let's start with uh, 3 meters, 5 meters, and we scaffold the way you address that fear. The other thing about the static line was that when I realized that the margin of error was small, I realized that the parachute had to be rigged properly, which means I have to trust the parachute riggers. And part of the course and learning was that you need to trust your fellow men in this case, were ladies who meticulously packed the chute. And you have to trust that it will deploy an opening. Yeah, so that, that was an important part of the learning outcome too. And in a high ropes, relying on your belayer or the guy that's climbing with you is part of the learning, uh, part of the encouragement. And then also the training preparation, of course, the techniques, whether it's skydiving, static line, or high ropes course. And that builds your personal confidence because that's within the space of what you can control. Of course, you can't completely eradicate the uncertainty, but there are ways for you to mitigate the risk yourself. So there are some things that are in your control. There are some things that are left to you to trust others. And then there are some things that are left to you to address your your fears. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guests. Okay, um, but, but speaking of these people who, you know, facilitate these learning outcomes, right? I think many people would have probably interacted only with a small number of them, you know, through their own school experience or work experience. Could you give us a sense of, you know, how many of these players are there in Singapore and how do they organize themselves? You know, are there certain associations, you know, bodies you know, that do this? It's, it's a very small community, yeah. Actually, we estimate there are about 50, 50 companies and organizations that offer some form of outdoor adventure education services uh, because the range of services can be quite wide. So not all of these companies offer everything, but they about 50 of them. And uh, we estimate about 3,000 employees, full-time and part-time in the sector. There is an... Uh, Outdoor Learning and Adventure Education Association with 20, 21 of these companies as members. 
the the rest may not be in this association, but they frequently are members of either or affiliates of uh, national sports associations, uh, and the practitioners are also involved through these NSAs. So that's that's what the picture looks like. Right, and do they follow the same you know, operational and safety standards and guidelines? I mean, and, and if so, what are some of these standards, both here and in other countries? Uh, well, we do follow uh, standards. The standards are also packed to international standards because, honestly, within the local realm, we haven't quite coordinated all the way we look at standards. And the standards can relate to either uh, adventure or the standards or and recreation, or the standards can also relate to learning. So because there is a differentiation, we also don't want the, the standards to rule out either outcomes. But we want to ensure that there are standards that are fit for outcomes. And then there's clarity about how the standards are applied and how they are then also effected into things like infrastructure design. Uh, so what, what we see is that there the sector is an uneven one like advances and there's a lot of potential to come together to align. I think that this is important in Singapore's next step because if you look at the national demand for learning through the outdoors and given that we have a small space, it is important for us to be able to maximise that space for that learning potential for the future of our generations. So if we don't have an outdoor learning sector that can support this national outcome, we will miss that window of opportunity. And therefore, it is actually all the more imperative now as MOE goes on their National Outdoor Education Master Plan for which we are partner with in the schools. And there is a time-based journey of growing the young person from primary school into secondary school and into the IHLs, using the outdoors as a means to teach resiliency, to impart self-efficacy, to, to push them to be future-ready and to embrace the uncertainties in a world where we know that the only certainty is uncertainty, then this becomes an important complement to education to equipping in the Forward SG agenda. So in aligning all this, uh, it is important to think about how we can better coordinate to get our act together in terms of standards, quality of experience and learning, safety, uh, and how we streamline our processes for differentiating or synergizing. We also need to align because we need to assure the public that we've got our act together and that the programs are good and safe. So without public confidence, there will be no subscription to these services. And finally, we need to align because we need to bring hope to the, to the thousands, the 3,000 workers in the sector, even within OBS, that there is a pathway that you are not just someone who can apply educational techniques in the outdoors. You are also an educator. You are also a person that can impart values. There is a pathway for this. There, is, there should be a viable career for this, for which then there are competencies and skills for which are then linked to the standards we spoke about. So hope for the sector must be important. Through COVID, we saw the businesses being impacted. Uh, also, 
questioning themselves, the sector as a whole, what they were there for, were they essential to the growth and the outcome of future generations. I think we've come out of COVID clearly aligned that we want to do something. And so in the coming months, you will see us coming together and probably making a more public statement about what we intend to do so that again, we are in better coordination. There is a stronger assurance to the public and that there's hope to the sector. I think what's really encouraging is that the sector and the companies and the practitioners are all very keen to collaborate and move forward. To be fair, the providers in Singapore are very conscious about safety and standards. Uh, it's just that the, the timing now is right to, to work together, to move ahead, to uh, as the sector emerges gradually out of the pandemic restrictions and programs re resume, uh, there's greater impetus to uh, collaborate and work out some of these collaborative efforts on how to move the sector ahead, including improving safety standards, uh, improving quality of program design, and of course, the training of staff. And as uh, David mentioned, professional development, which is a key key piece uh, to, to the whole puzzle. So looking at what's been done so far, um, and not just what's you know, probably going to be announced soon, I understand that there have been steps taken to streamline or align the different standards. Could you share with us more details about some of these steps? And you know, was it done in the light of you know, recent, some, some height-based activity accidents, or actually are there broader considerations um, behind this, which you have alluded to mm. here? I think uh, this conversation about improving standards of safety and quality has been going on for a long time, many, many years. And uh, this list is a milestone, uh, the latest milestone of uh, the conversation has evolved. And what we are doing now is, after consulting with the stakeholders in the sector, is that, yes, we're going to uh, bring people together to get, form work groups to develop uh, specific standards for the activities that are offered in this sector. So we are not the experts in standards development. And so we have uh, enlisted the help of Enterprise Singapore and the Standards Council. Uh, they are the experts in setting standards for Singapore across different agencies and in industries. And so they are facilitating it. And the process is a transparent and consensus-building process. Uh, it in includes... Uh, government agencies, the academia, private sector, the practitioners and various technical and safety experts. So the group is coming together to contribute their ideas. Uh, these are all volunteers, by the way. Uh, so they're really giving up their time to, to contribute to the development of these standards. At the end of the day, the entire work group comprising all these diverse representation needs to agree on the final draft. And the public will be consulted. There will be public consultation to, to ensure that all inputs are considered and before it's finalised. So in general, that is the, the way forward for standards development. And of course, the other aspects about professional development, those are in the works. The standards, I think, is the very specific steps we want to take first. But in parallel, uh, there are other work groups that will work on uh, professional development and training and those kind of areas. 
And what do you think is the future of the sector, especially after COVID-19? Because you spoke of hope, you know, and, um, you know, are both the industry as well as the participants hopeful that these activities will resume to the same level as before? I, I have, like I said, plenty of expectations and hope for, for this sector and it has to grow just simply because in, in the learning journey of a citizen, this aspect of using the, the spaces outside of the urban environment and outside the offices and outside the schools is important one as a link back to discovering, like I said uh, earlier, uh, people learn to uh, wobble, they learn to discover and then they learn to practice and then they reapply. And we must make the use, best use of all the spaces available. So, so this sector has a lot of potential if we can come together to coordinate, not just standards, but to look at infrastructure and spaces for these kind of outcomes and then begin to think about twinning it with some of the social agencies that look at building social resilience in the people. These are things, and it's not just, it's also kind of linked to sports and all the other activities that we do. These are things that lend to the well-being of a citizen. It arrests a lot of the social, medical, aging issues. So, so much potential if we can just... But we have to start somewhere. And so, let's just... Uh, what I, As Evan said, what I'm very happy to see is that people are beginning to come together to and, and have a process where there's multi-stakeholder involvement, even the sports agency sites to distinguish, to differentiate, and to be clear. And then that helps us in where we want to bring the outcomes to, to support our development of, of Singaporeans, not just from the young, but also through the ages. And so, like for me, I want to be able to continue my outdoor education and learning. Uh, I want to do it with my family. I want to do it with my friends. I want to do it when I'm 50. I want to do it when I'm 70. I hope I'm still doing it at 80. And we should. The, the level of self-efficacy and resiliency here, we cannot discount the cost and the benefit that it brings. Thank you both for coming on our show. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Grace. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap for In Your Opinion, a new podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below. There is also a link to my article on outdoor learning and adventure education. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.